Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm Jacob Kyle. My guest today is Ralph De La Rosa, who's a psychotherapist and meditation teacher based in Brooklyn, New York. He is the creator of the Mindfulness Sessions, which is a weekly meditation group that meets at Loom Yoga Studio in the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn. Ralph and I spoke about a wide variety of topics in this interview, including neuroplasticity, some of the common myths about meditation, and also some problematic notions of enlightenment and what enlightenment means. Ralph also shared very openly his incredible life story, which from a very young age was characterized by a lot of suffering, loss, and depression. He speaks candidly about his battle with drugs and the various steps on his spiritual path, which finally culminated in the Buddhist-informed practice that he teaches and practices today. Towards the end of the interview, Ralph led us in a really beautiful short practice of what he calls brain rewiring, which helps to shift uh, the neural pathways in positive and transformative ways. Before we get started, I do want to offer just a short disclaimer and apology for the quality of uh, my microphone in this interview. I've had some trouble with this microphone and it's been replaced now, but in this interview, there are moments where it is a little bit hard to hear me, so I apologize for that and won't be happening in future interviews. All right, so without further ado, here's Ralph De La Rosa. Hello, Ralph. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So it's, it's interesting that we're only now getting an opportunity to chat because I feel like we have a lot of mutual friends and uh, there's a lot of um, places and times that I've come into contact with the Mindfulness Sessions, which is your project, and also just seeing your name around, I've heard about you. And when you had offered some of your Dharma talks and uh, some recordings of your workshops recently and I listened to them, I was further struck by the fact that I hadn't really chatted to you because so much of what you said really resonates with me. I really appreciate your perspective on Buddhist meditation practice. I feel like you, what's interesting about you is that you really dispel a lot of the mythology and you address a lot of kind of the dogmas about meditation in a way that's really fruitful for a lot of people. And one of the things that you um, mention in one of the workshops I listened to was mindfulness practice from a from a brain perspective. So I'm interested to know, sort of just to start off, what does this mean? What is mindfulness practice from uh, a, a brain perspective? And also in comparison to what mindfulness practice might be, you know, from not a brain perspective. Sure thing. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for all of those lovely words. Um, that's really amazing. And I'm so pleased to hear that what I'm putting out into the world is resonating with people. Um, I'm just sharing my practice, sharing what has been generously shared with me and what has been generously uh, passed down generation after generation for millennia. And so it's just such an honor um, to have this, to serve as a vehicle for this body of information, this body of knowledge, and this body of technique, of inner technology, uh, to be a vehicle for that and to share my practice uh, with others has been actually, sometimes I talk about how it's it's like a, a shell game, it's a bait and switch. People think that they're coming to me for to receive something, and actually I'm receiving all of the benefit because offering this really and truly uh, pushes me to study, pushes me to practice in a really honest and sincere way, and I get so much benefit from offering it. Um, I'm the one who's really walking away with something all the time. So um, in the spirit of that, um, thank you again for having me along to, to share some more in this interview. 
With regards to the brain-based situation um, with meditation, you know, it's a really interesting question because there's no such thing really from a certain point of view as a not brain-based perspective. So certainly, of course, we've seen over the last several years an explosion of interest about meditation. It seems like every time I'm opening the Huffington Post or the New York Times or even Business Insider or Forbes magazine, there's something about mindfulness. There's something about the way that it's being proven to reach shape the brain um, and, and have so much outstanding benefit in people's lives. And that is really wonderful. Um, The brain-based perspective, really what it is, is giving us a new uh, language, a new set of terminologies that are uh, more accepted in the Western world to talk about the stuff that we've already known for a really long time. So it's really fascinating to me to to think about, you know, Buddhist monks and lay practitioners from centuries ago doing these exact same practices and maybe not even knowing what the brain was or that it existed in the way that we are aware of it. And still these practices were changing their brains without them knowing it, right? So in terms of the brain-based perspective specifically, you know, we know that... um, we know that the where we place our awareness and the quality with which we we place our awareness um, specifically leaves behind traces of neural structure. Everything, if I can back up a little bit, the brain-based perspective is really about neuroplasticity, about the, the insight that the brain is plastic, that it's constantly changing, and it's constantly changing with experience. Neuroplasticity is what they say is experience-dependent. Therefore, everything that we think and everything that we take in through our senses and everything that we do with the mind is incredibly important because everything we do, again, leaves behind traces of neural structure, physically is creating changes in our body. And our brain and our minds and our bodies are the vehicle for everything that we experience every moment of every day. So whereas meditation from a non-brain-based perspective could say, well, if you're a little bit harsh on yourself in the name of achieving concentration, that would be an acceptable thing. I would say that the brain-based perspective really heightens the need for radical kindness, for radical grace and positivity and self-compassion, and paying attention to the fact that every bit of how we treat ourselves in a meditation practice is incredibly important because it's, it's changing us. It's changing us. So there's no room for harsh recrimination or for thoughts of self-judgment from a brain-based perspective. Because we know that every iota of, of negative self-talk is what our mind is taking shape around. Uh, but really, truly, there's, there's no difference because the brain and the mind are in constant relationship with one another. They're not the same thing, but they are in constant relationship uh, with one another. And you can't have one without the other. And so there's really no difference between the two perspectives. I think kindness is has been the bedrock of meditation and the meditation tradition from day one. Mm. That's really interesting. And, and what you said about neuroplasticity, I wanted to maybe ask you about, because 
from my understanding, this perspective of neuroplasticity is actually a fairly recent shift in the understanding of the brain, if I'm correct, in that the brain was previously thought of as being relatively static. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about that. You know, what was this kind of shift in, in, the, in the idea of, of how the brain interacts with the body and, 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 and how these practices can affect the brain? Sure. So, you know, up until, what, 20, 30 years ago, uh, the, the predominant thinking in scientific culture was that you received all of your programming from years zero to five. Mm -hmm. You received all of your uh, conditioning for your personality, your character, your habits, your various traits through the, in the early ages of your life. And then that was it. The rest of your life was playing out that conditioning, playing out that programming. And if you were an alcoholic, well, you were stuck like that. If you were schizophrenic, then you were stuck like that. If you were a depressive, then you were stuck like that. If you were an obsessive compulsive or, or a binge eater, then that was your lot in life. Mm -hmm. and, and now we know that none of this is true, that none of this is true, that the brain changes certainly zero through five are the most important years and the most uh, the years when we are most vulnerable and susceptible to influence, sure. But the brain changes all the way up until the time that we die. So it, it places humanity in a much more hopeful situation than was once, than was previously conceived to be. <clears throat> so yeah, I think that's so, it's so fascinating and such an important observation discovery because, uh, and, and maybe you agree with me, I feel like this mythology uh, that you're speaking about of kind of, uh, you know, coming into a certain um, static identity still prevails. I mean, that is really what a lot of people, maybe not in, a, in an explicit way, but implicitly they feel that you know they can't they can't really change once they once they're an adult everything is basically settled and and so what i hear you saying is that there's this profound possibility for um you know a malleable identity that can really start to work in the direction of of you know more liberating ways of thinking and behaving and and, and potentially healthier ways of living yes and Allow me to hold up a contrasting idea here, too, because one thing about the promise of neuroplasticity, one thing about the promise of, of mindfulness definitely creating changes in the brain is that, well, it'd be really seductive to think that this means change is really easy mm -hmm. and that change, you know, we can achieve change in a relatively short amount of time and that a few meditation sessions or a few retreats or a few ther uh, therapy sessions or something like that is enough to achieve radical changes. Yes, there are studies being done where in six to eight weeks with 20 minutes of practice a day, mindfulness practitioners are creating lasting changes in their brain that in post-tests six months, a year later, are still there even after practice stops. Yes, that is happening. But we're also talking about practitioners who are sitting down every day for six to eight weeks. And that can be actually a challenging situation out here in the non-scientific world where, you know, practitioners who are in the study, they're paid to 
practice, right. basically. And, you know, achieving that sort of discipline can be a little bit tough for, for beginning practitioners and can even be discouraging, you know. So, yes, change is possible. And, uh, and, and we are the, the creators of that change. Um, we definitely have the opportunity to participate with our reality in such a way that we can sculpt our brains, we can uh, train ourselves to relate to emotions in a much more skillful uh, a healthy capacity, but it also takes time, and it doesn't. There's no substitute for the the daily regimen and the and the constant work on oneself, and looking at how change is really made possible and fast forwarded, uh, galvanized by when we take a multifaceted approach. So yes, meditation. No substitute for meditation. But also, what are you doing with your body? Right. You know, yoga practice, exercise, these things are really important. What are you doing with your breath? Mm -hmm. You know, are, do you have somebody to talk to that you can trust? Do you have a good social support system? What does your diet look like? Do you drink enough water? All of these things are, still remain crucially important alongside meditation practice. Yeah, you can't just have, you know, principles in those 20 minutes of meditation every day. There has to be some kind of, like, integration with the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That as well. Yeah. That wow, that's so interesting. So now I wanna shift gears a little bit and go to the story of your practice. So I would love to just hear um, you know, what brought you to uh, Buddhism, you know, how you kind of evolved and what situations in your life led you to this path. Sure, sure. So a little bit of a long story, but um, well sometimes I start my story by saying when I was very young, I wanted three things. Mm. I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to be Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I also wanted to die. Um, you know, I grew up not in a tremendously difficult situation, but with a fair amount of difficulty. Uh, my dad literally just disappeared from my family when I was four years old. Um, I developed a, a fairly severe depression when I was eight years old and began thinking of suicide on a daily basis at eight years old. Um, I was also really obsessed with rock and roll and Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and Motley Crue. <laughs> um, and I also grew up in a Southern Baptist family and community where... where um, in Southern California in a small town near Arizona and Mexico called El Centro. So um, all of these kind of elements in my life uh, of, of just having experiences of despair, of not fitting in, I wasn't, I didn't fit in with boys in public school because I wasn't aggressive and competitive and into bullying and trying to come out on top. Um, which actually made me a target for harassment and bullying myself. And right. later that became, you know, getting beaten up and jumped and things like this. Um, so kind of hitting these real emotional lows early on in life gave me a real hunger and thirst for, well, what does this all mean? Is there something higher? Uh, what, 
what is behind the scenes of all of this? And if, is there somebody pulling the strings? And if so, I want to know that someone, right? And the only body of knowledge I had access to at that time was Christianity. So I dug in pretty deep at a very early age, at about six, and then uh, went even deeper at about 12. And six, you went deep into Christianity. Yeah, at six, I surprised my family by walking the aisle and going up and taking, you know, doing the prayer of accepting uh, Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and making a public profession of my faith in my church and, and wow. getting baptized and everything. And everybody was like, you're six years old. Do you even know what you're doing? And I was like, yes, if this is it, if this is what's available, then I, I, why would I wait? <laughs> for meaning. Right, right. And then about when I was 12, I met a youth minister who really, I didn't, of course, didn't realize it at that time, was a surrogate father figure for me. Um, and I went very deep into Christianity, into daily prayer, multiple pray, uh, prayer sessions per day, um, reading the Bible, attending church whenever the doors were open, that sort of thing. And really a lot of, when I trace back now, a lot of my first very deep meditation experiences came from being praying several times a day and kind of going within several times a day and also this practice of of confession of like well what have i done let's review my steps you know i i mean yes the guilt and the shame aspect in, that that is embedded in christianity not so healthy but there's a, a intelligence in doing that in well Let's review what's happened for me today yeah. and, and think about how I can do better and think about how I can resolve this. Um, and that led to a feeling of deep presence in me that I would name now very differently, not so much as a presence of God, but just a, a deep presence of the stillness of, of mind that is you know, underneath all the layers of chaos and insanity that we experience on an everyday basis is, is actually available also on an everyday basis. So eventually um, that situation led to a great disillusionment. Um, I was verbally and on one occasion physically abused by uh, my youth pastor. Um, and let's see, so then I rebelled <laughs> for, for quite a while and um, got into punk rock and DIY and Riot Girl and feminism and animal rights. And that was certainly a, another type of awakening that was very important and something that still informs my path today. I discovered Reiki when I was 18 years old and I was told that it was the, it, it was the same type of healing that Jesus used. And I was very intrigued by that. And I was very intrigued by that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is the same uh, power that Jesus used to even raise Lazarus from the dead and to heal the blind and, and what have you. And so that's Same that. Promise. Yeah, right? Right for one weekend, you know, weekend workshop for 120 bucks. <laughs> and this is what you'll get. Right. And so, yes, yeah, that, that's how it was sold to me. And I'll never forget, actually, the, the weekend that we went to do the workshop the first time the person who was the Reiki master who was attuning us uh, had to cancel because she got sick. And I thought, well, wait, what? <laughs> she didn't heal herself. What the heck is going on? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, my understanding of Reiki today is now very, very different. But um, at the time and through the eyes of an 18-year-old, you know, uh, there was a disillusionment on the way with that already yeah, from the beginning. Up for failure. There's no way I could live up to that. Right. Right. Uh, 
But then the person that I explored Reiki with um, was my first love. Uh, and uh, that eventually led to heartbreak and some more disillusionment as mm-hmm. well. Somewhere along the way, I was introduced to the book Be Here Now by Ram Das, kind of seminal text uh, written in the 1970s, one of the first authentic uh, texts written by and for practitioners of the Dharma uh, that, that really made a landing here in the West. Uh, and when I had my heart broken by my first love, you know, I, I really wanted to, to drop out in a, in a real way. And my disillusionment with the world was such that it was, it was like, I mean, also with a history of depression and suicidality, um, that got woven into this, this attempt at spirituality because it was like, well, if this is samsara, I want out. Mm-hmm. I want out in a radical way. And, um, and really, my, that stab at spirituality was fueled by this sense of escapism. I want out of the material world. Please show me how. I never want to come back here again. If reincarnation is true, let's make sure this, right. <laughs> this mess, uh, we don't have a rerun of it, right? Yeah. So... It was that when I started hanging out with uh, the local temple of Hare Krishnas, um, who definitely had a a way out, hey, join up the temple, you'll never work a day in your life, you know, you'll never punch a time card again, Uh, this is definitely the way out of samsara, we are completely a rejection of the world, you know, we we dress differently, We, we keep a different schedule, we're up at four in the morning singing and dancing, you know, and we are definitely with our eyes set on how to not reincarnate and take another birth here in samsara and how to be reborn in a pure land of bliss. And to my, at that time, 19-year-old uh, eyes, uh, that looked like a really good thing. And again, just quite a promise, quite a promise to live up to. And so I went for it, and I dove in, you know, head first, and uh, moved in. Moved into the ashram and took on in California. in California. This was actually in Pacific Beach, San Diego, California, uh, and um, had a wonderful time singing and dancing and feasting, and definitely learned how to cultivate transcendent states of true bliss. Wow. You know, singing and dancing in the temple all the time just really gave way to this feeling of of ecstasy and divine devotion and I'm really doing the highest thing that I could possibly do with this human birth. And what a validation that was and how beautiful was it. Um, But time came when (laughs) I found out, I was actually traveling on the road uh, with a a group of eight other celibate monks called brahmacharis. Uh, We were selling Hare Krishna literature in the parking lots of Weezer and No Doubt shows. Wow. Because... Because we were, (laughs) yes, exactly. We were looking for, and they called them sweeties, (laughs) which was anybody who was looked lost. You know, uh, we would see right, right. We would see uh, a girl walking in Doc Martens with like pink hair, who was about sixteen years old. And I mean, this literally happened. Like, sweetie, at six o'clock, turn the van around. I'm gonna sell her a book. And a monk would jump out and sell her a book. 
<laughs> and, um, so that's what we were doing at that point. I couldn't take it in the temple, so they, they sent me on tour uh, selling literature. And I got around these hardcore celibate dudes, and it turned out that one of their favorite pastimes was uh, talking bad about women, like literally female bashing over lunch because... Uh, I don't know, it's kind of complicated, but, but celibate monks are in a very complicated situation with women in the temple who may be looking for a husband. Um, because women are told that their best chances for enlightenment is to find a really devout guy. And the really devout guys are all celibate. So there's this whole... This is in the ideology of... This is in the... Yeah. The yeah, yeah. So... Um, at least in the temple that I was, right. I, was, right. I was in, but it's certainly in Srila Prabhupada's words and his interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita and all of this stuff. And so I was, again, really searching and really going for it and then bumping up against disillusionment and having to, I mean, I was in Nashville, Tennessee when I left. Um, I had no clothes, no hair, no money, <laughs> no, no anything. I actually had to call my dad in Oklahoma to come and get me, um, which was another journey and another story for another day. So, and walking away from that was incredibly painful also. Um, and it took me, I found out about Amma um, pretty much right after I left the temple, but I wasn't quite ready to re-engage with anything, not for a few years. In the year 2000, uh, through, I mean, I don't want to take up all the time of this podcast, but through a string of just unlikely events, unlikely events, I ended up meeting Ama for the first time and um, ended up in San Ramon, California. I had made it up to San Francisco uh, at this point. I ended up meeting Ama uh, for the first time and absolutely fell in love. And here was a path with little dichotomy, with, uh, with little power hierarchy, with, um, where I just didn't sense uh, uh, some of the distortions that I had experienced before. And I traveled across the country with her that year. Um, I traveled not knowing how I was going to get from city to city and not knowing where I would lay my head on any given night. And I made it from San Francisco all the way to Rhode Island with no problem. Just as she told me, I asked her if I could go and she said, it will be no problem. And it was no problem. I just made it. Were you traveling with a, a community of other people? I was, well, there's, there's a community that definitely follows her on tour. So, you know, there's people looking for rides or people looking to, you know, split renting a car or people looking for people to uh, share their hotel room with them or whatever. So it wasn't, you know, insanely difficult and I wasn't that crazy and I certainly wasn't the only one doing it. But... Um, what a summer it was. What a yeah. summer it was, just absolutely immersing myself in practice, immersing myself in, you know, if you've ever met Amma, she definitely has a presence. Oh, yeah. She definitely brings the love bomb, and you can just feel it all around her. And, you know, lots of really amazing things happened that year. And I definitely met with transcendental, blissed out Ananda, you know, just ecstatic spiritual states and experiences on that trip that when I, that summer ended and I found myself eventually back in San Francisco, back in my so-called worldly life, you know, the, the 
those experiences were no longer there and there was no day-to-day follow-up. And how do I maintain a practice? What, what does it look like to, to engage on this level without the guru present? Yeah. Um, very difficult. And the problem was really me. Um, the problem was that I was attached to experiences. I was, ex- I was attached to reaching transcendent states of meditation. Mm-hmm. And um, without Ahmed there, I couldn't really go there. And I really thought that that was the point. Right. I really thought that that was the point, was to reach these high states of consciousness um, and, to, and to stay there. But, you know, you reach these high states of consciousness and you invariably come down. And I didn't know what to do with that. And, well, um, I returned to my depression. I returned to a sense of hopelessness. I returned to wanting to die, actually. And I returned to drugs, Actually, and um, and you know, because there is a way to maintain a high state of consciousness. There is a way to just hold that, you know, uh, ability to modulate your emotions, modulate your experience. It's you know, I felt like drugs were an empowerment. Actually, I'm putting my life in my own hands, right? I call the shots here. I dictate what I want to feel and when I come up and when I come down and you know, whatever. Um, of course, that was a huge, incredible lie. And I eventually, you know, and I, and I was doing this alongside of spiritual practice, alongside of chanting my mantra, alongside of going to see Amma at the ashram twice a year uh, for many years. And, um, and I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't get it together. And I was, you know, practicing, but, but still lost and confused and had a very, you know, dualistic life. Yeah. So eventually that bottomed out on me. Eventually, you know, cocaine and whiskey and fun party times turned to, you know, when uh, the floor fell out from underneath me, um, as in uh, three people died. One of them was my dad. Um, Another was a singer in a band that I played in called the River Bottom Nightmare. Um, died of a heroin overdose. My dad died of a heart attack. And a woman that I was partying with OD'd. Um, in, and she was sleeping in a bed next to me. And I woke up and found her. Um, so when tragedy uh, struck in my life, my addiction went from you know, party times and dancing in clubs and playing in rock and roll bands to... Uh, heroin and hiding out and uh, just very severe depression and um, really trying to kill myself but in in a in a cowardly way in a in a slow way and um, but but daily I mean heroin addiction is is quite intense and what you're trying to do when you're really addicted is you're trying to get right to the edge of ODing on a daily basis and without slipping over and I definitely slipped over um, more than once as well. So that put me in a position of either I really get this together or I'm going to be successful one day. And um, I had to go to rehab. Um, uh, earlier that year before I went to rehab, I discovered Dharma punks. And I, you know, in San Francisco, it's called Urban Dharma. And I sat with these teachers, Vinnie Ferraro and Jean Lushtak, who I uh, considered to be my first Buddhist teachers, the first ones who gave me meditation instruction in the insight meditation tradition and uh, first laid Buddha Dharma on me. 
And luckily enough, I had discovered that, which is very much a recovery-oriented community. When I landed in rehab, I w- they allowed me to go to Dharma Punks for those reasons. And there my meditation practice started in this, in this place where, you know, I went to this rehab where <laughs> the dudes were being bussed in from San Quentin all the time, you know, and, and unshackled on the premises and then were my roommates, <laughs> you know, and then sleeping next to me. And it was that kind of environment. But I also, it was amazing because it was six months of getting to be my broken self and not having to work and, and just sitting in a room and working it out in all of these group therapy sessions and then having the opportunity to meditate three, four, five, six times a day if I wanted to, and I really threw myself into practice and said, and, and discovered quite quickly that like, oh, this is, this is what's going to change everything. Because it's not an experience, breath-based meditation practice, mindfulness-based meditation practice is not experience dependent. You're not trying to achieve transcendent states. You're not propped up by some mantra or some idea of the divine. And not saying that that's bad necessarily. For me, it was, it was like drugs, uh, having the, the trappings of uh, religious culture, having the trappings of various philosophies and ideas about divinity and transcendence and what have you. Just the starting point with Buddhism is just you, your breath, and your mind. Cultivate a relationship with that. Learn how to just be here. Learn how to walk this earth. Put two feet upon the earth before putting your head in the heavens. You know, as a be a simple human being. Become a decent human being before you attempt enlightenment, whatever that means. <laughs> and from there, my life really transformed in a meaningful way. And from there, I developed a daily practice that became the the, the root of my own inward revolution um, that gave me a way to manage my emotions, that gave me a way to work with my body and gave me a way to cultivate a relationship with myself that would then reflect um, within the, my relationships with everybody else in my life too. You know, it's another big piece of depression and addiction is your relationships are really chaotic. And this gave me a method for understanding, well, my relationship to myself is my relationship to everything else. How you do anything is how you do everything. So, uh, you know, uh, it was quite a profound revolution on all levels that, that f- I finally woke up. I finally found sanity, and I, and I found a way to just be me, uh, free from all of these other habits and tendencies and neuroses and what have you. And not that it hasn't been, it's been 10 years since then, and, you know, not that it all went away either right away. Um, but I can definitely say that although there are days, I have my bad days like anybody else, and there are days where it's like, I, I'm just a little stuck today. I'm a little bit stuck in the clouds and the shadows today. I do have those days, but I definitely live free from depression now. I definitely live free from suicidality now. I definitely am lucky enough to be able to have a couple glasses of wine and put them down, you know, um, put it down at, at the end of the night without that compulsion to constantly feed on something and, and, and without that fixate. And I have a life filled with purpose and meaning and um and a lot of passion and really wonderful people really wonderful community and uh really wonderful teachers and constant inspiration and so wow 
Wow, that is such an incredible story, Ralph. And I'm so grateful that you shared it in such an open-hearted and honest way because I think that so many people struggle in the way that you've struggled. And I myself have had a history of drugs and a problematic relationship with them. And so when you talk about this compulsion to escape, it really resonates with me. I, and and I and absolutely, uh, uh, drugs were something that I was initially attracted to because I felt like I was accessing higher states of consciousness. Yep. Because I wasn't at home with my status quo consciousness. Because mm-hmm. it was somehow, you know, deeply melancholic. You know, I I had a lot, and I still do. You know, suffer with anxiety on a variety of levels, and and so that access to a feeling of almost invincibility and no kind of self-judgment that is, you know, characteristic of maybe, you know, everyday experience for me. Um, you know, it's very enticing. And so to hear you talk about this um, this desire for escape and the confusion or the misunderstanding, at least for your path, that that, that was the point I think is so important to hear because I I really think and I'd love for you to maybe extrapolate on this a little bit. Um, I tend to feel like the the a lot of times the discourse around enlightenment or whatever that um, that self realization or that moment of of awakening is. There's something. There's a kind of escapist uh, uh, discourse written into it, or there's this idea that when we access it, we're going to transcend the world. And to me, that seems a bit problematic, especially for people like us who are trying to transcend our own experience. I mean, mm-hmm. we're trying to transcend for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts on that sort of in a, in a more philosophical, from a more philosophical standpoint, what are we doing when we're, when we're externalizing enlightenment in this way? Right. And, then, and, then, you know, and then off of that, what is enlightenment to you then? Sure. So let me begin by saying that, you know, the Hare Krishnas, they have a profound ancient tradition. They're an authentic lineage of a branch of Hinduism with their own particular philosophy that didn't work for me. Amma is still my heart teacher to this day. And like I said, the, the problem was me and my attitude uh, towards towards meditation, towards spiritual experience and towards this concept of enlightenment. Um, and, and I love that you said externalizing, meaning that it's something outside of me that I have to then go and reach and, and cultivate, um, which, is, which is necessarily alienating, which is necessarily disempowering, actually. It's saying I'm not enough on my own. I need to add to my, my situation in order to become enough, right? And then we, and, and at that point, enacting spiritual materialism really makes sense. Well, maybe if I get the right robes and the right mantra and the right beads and a Sanskrit name and, you know, and surround myself with enough spiritual and high-minded people, well, then maybe then I'll become enough, you know, and, and those are also external methods, right? Or maybe if I... Uh, you know, yoga away my my depression, or if I just manage to put my anxiety in a drawer, or whatever. Or if I take enough trips to India, or or whatever it is, and that all of that, would, while it can be fine, it can certainly be fine. All of that intrinsically says, 
it's not something that's in me. It's something out there that I have to reach. And it's necessarily disempowering. The spiritual path is one of empowerment. Always, always, always. In fact, I recently uh, began augmenting my language around meditation instruction because telling people what to do is really disempowering. Being told what to do is disempowering. And this should be a practice that uh, uh, is empowering. So I, I've learned to phrase my instructions now as invitations, as opportunities, as, you know, ideas, um, really. So, you know, I had a student uh, recently ask me what enlightenment was, and really I had to come back and say, I don't know. <laughs> um, because I haven't been there, and I speak from my experience always as a rule. Um, but I can, you know, I can say from a Buddhist perspective, philosophically, the words are not just transcend, they're transcend and include. Mm -hmm. You transcend and include your present experience. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that samsara and nirvana are inseparable. And what, what dictates whether you experience samsara versus nirvana is really the, the level of attachment in your own mind. That, that these are not places, these are points of view. Yeah. Right. Um, it's a shift in perspective. It's a shift in perspective, definitely. So... So it's not, a, it's not as if you, samsara, leaving samsara is to leave the world behind. It's that your relationship with the world changes. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, that adage from Christianity certainly remains true, to be in the world but not of the world. Mm -hmm to engage with the world and to do the laundry and the dishes and pay your taxes and have a zip code and a name and preferences and, uh, and what have you. <laughs> I was just doing yoga at a Bauhaus <laughs> before you came over here, you know, and uh, to engage with the world, but in a different way and from a different perspective. Um, they say an enlightened person sees both uh, delusion and with clarity at the same time. I don't understand exactly how that works, <laughs> but, but they, they are situated within both. Um, and and it's, it's, I imagine it's almost like a choice that you're constantly making, yeah. right? So for, for my uh, money and for my context and where I'm at in my practice, I'll just say this, that it's, it's, it's all, the answers are all within the body and the mind. Um, to the Buddha said to, uh, that, that the Dharma is in our bodies, and he referred to our six senses as glory fields, mm. right? And the body and the mind are not separate, much like the brain and the mind aren't separate. The brain is just the body, right? So, so and I love how I believe it was Patabi Joyce who said, you know, with regards to Ashtanga yoga, and I think certainly the same applies with deep meditation practice, that, you know, before practice, the philosophy is useless. After practice, the philosophy is obvious, <laughs> right? So, so when we look deeply at mind, one of the opportunities that is there is to, to see firsthand for yourself that there is both the container of mind, that are, are, which is spacious awareness, that the mind is really and truly vast, and then there's the stuff that happens within mind. 
So all of our sense perceptions, all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our our, our preferences, including, you know, the sound of a tractor that's happening, a block down that I can happen to hear. You know, we live in Brooklyn where this kind of feels like you're living in a construction zone much of the time. So, you know, even ambient noises that are far off in the distance, it's like that is within the container of spacious awareness. Uh, spacious awareness, the container of mind, which is the context for all of our experience to, to go on within much like a movie screen uh, that, that is the context that a movie is projected upon, right? The apparatus itself is actually stable, constantly present, constantly peaceful, very serene, very vivid and, and bright and vibrant, full of energy and full of peace all the time. That is the background of our experience that is absolutely 100% there. Um, it is, again, the container with, within which all of our experience is happening. And so from that vantage point, the spiritual practice is not about cultivating some superpower that will, you know, propel you like a, like a jetpack off to this land called enlightenment. But the, the spiritual path is then cultivating the eyes to see that which is already there. And sometimes I think to myself that, well, we're cultivating calmness and fortitude and discipline and serenity and love and positive self-regard and positive regard for others. We're cultivating all of these things on purpose in meditation practice. But sometimes I think to myself, that's a trick. I think we're actually cultivating these things in meditation practice so that we'll be able to recognize turn within and recognize, oh, that's what's already there. Mm. But if we don't know it in our conscious everyday experience, how are we going to notice it in the background of our experience? Mm. So sometimes I look at meditation from that perspective. Yeah, I love that. I, I think when you, when you um, described the kind of container of our experience, there was a way that you described it that I thought was really resonant for me. And mm. yeah, that was really powerful. Um, so now I want to ask you, about um, just, I feel like this is a good segue into this discussion since we're sort of moving into what meditation is. I was listening to your one of your um, workshops the other day, and I really liked what you talked about. Uh, you talked about some of the the complaints about meditation, and also uh, a misunderstanding uh, uh, of meditation, or at least a perspective that you take on meditation, which is against the idea that, that thoughts are bad. Mm -hmm. So I want you to kind of maybe unpack that a little bit. You know, what is this, you know, mythology about meditation and, and thoughts being bad and I have to purge myself of thoughts? You know, what is that? And, and what are, what, from your perspective, should we be focusing on more? What would be more of a, a helpful way of approaching meditation rather than, than this kind of uh, idea? Right. So... The number one complaint with meditation is that my mind is busy. I can't get to it. I'm too scattered. I, I'm, it's, it's a mess in there. I can't even believe it. Like, how am I supposed to sit down with this? Um, one of the characters on that show, uh, what is it, Garfunkel? Oh, I can't remember it right now. Uh, Garfunkel and Oates. Um, hilarious TV show. She says... 
meditation is like giving a bullhorn to all of the thoughts I was trying to crowd out with TV, <laughs> right? Like we sit down and we look inside and it's like turning on a, a light in a dark room and it's like, holy crap, it is a mess in there and I don't want to deal with it. So one of the myths of meditation is, you know, my, my brain is too busy for this. And, and isn't it about getting rid of all of that? Isn't it about emptying out your mind, achieving some blank slate consciousness? Like it, it's about being Zen, just sitting and spacing out, right? Like people think that that's what Zen means. And um, nothing, could be, nothing could be different, actually. Um, <clears throat> thoughts are good. Let me just say something really <laughs> revolutionary here. Thoughts are great. Um, our brain thinks 60 thought fragments per snap of a finger. That's a whole lot of thinking. Um, some of our neurons travel at 200 miles an hour, right? Our brains eat up 20% of our total calories, and it's only wow. like three pounds of our entire body, right? There's a lot of electricity pumping through our brains. There's a lot going on with thoughts. We're not gonna be able to stop that, one. We're not gonna sit down and be able to just stop that process. And two, who would want to anyways? Thoughts are really interesting. Thoughts are, are you know, there's a difference between thoughts and thinking. But we can establish that, you know, that thinking is when we take control of our thoughts and we kind of steer the flow of this river of thoughts that's constantly going. But the, the river of thoughts is constantly going, right? And and thinking is, is how you came to be doing this podcast. Thinking is how I came to have, you know, the mindfulness sessions and have developed it to be what it is. Thinking is how good Dharma talks happen and how good meditation instruction happens is we, are, we become thoughtful and reflective about what we're doing in the world. Thoughts are really good. They're our friends. <laughs> so... You probably wouldn't be a very interesting without them. It, right? What a, be able to engage in a conversation. <laughs> what a life that would be. I'm not signing up for the spiritual path to be a vegetable. <laughs> um, I have, there's plenty of time for that later in life, I suppose. It's a, a possibility. But So rather thoughts in meditation, so from a foundational perspective of meditation, the river of thoughts that we are constantly with offer us an opportunity to learn how to be skillful about this experience of having thoughts float through and then our tendency to engage with them uh, and to engage in thinking rather than sitting with an intentional object of focus such as the breath or a candle flame or a mantra or so on. Right, And that's what we find is that we sit down and we intend to pay attention to an object of focus and our mind just slips off and we go back into the realm of thinking. And that is um, natural. That is natural and that's okay. The, the opportunity of meditation is to work with that situation and to, to make friends with that situation over and over again and to train ourselves in kindness uh, within that situation. So thoughts are there to help us strengthen, mm -hmm. to help us strengthen in foundational meditations where you're just focusing on an object. If we are to go to the realm of cultivating positivity in meditation, which would be the second family in Buddhist meditation, cultivating positivity, we can become aware of the content of our thoughts a little bit in that our thoughts are always about trying to get us happiness 
in some way, some, some happiness or some derivative of happiness and trying to avoid suffering, anxiety, failure, you know, some derivative of suffering. They're always going in that direction. If I'm thinking about the future, I'm thinking about all the things that I want and all the things that I hope I get right and don't forget about to pick that up at the store because then I won't have it for tomorrow and I won't be able to be happy. If I'm thinking about the past, I'm thinking about what I could have done better in order to be happy or to suffer less and so on. So like loving kindness meditation cuts to the chase, cuts through all of those thoughts and says... You know, because loving kindness meditation is a practice of wishing oneself and others happiness and freedom from suffering. And so we get to the root of all of what our thinking is about in loving kindness meditation, which is, which is quite powerful. So, you know, loving kindness meditation is going in the flow of where our thinking is anyways. We're just getting to the, the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. And then if we go into the third realm of meditation, the third family of meditation, which is eliminating negativity, so healing from trauma and distress, which we've all had traumas, either with a lowercase t or a capital T, and cultivating compassion, right, and which the, the two go hand in hand. It is through healing from our traumas that compassion is cultivated. It is through facing our own darknesses that we learn how to have true empathy and and a desire to conjoin with others in their path of healing. Um, So in that family of meditation, what's what I see in my experience being a psychotherapist and having taught meditation for a number of years and from just my own personal experience with myself and, and developing is that the more trauma, unresolved stuff we're holding, the more shadow material we're holding, the more we have not met with our what, what uh, Rogerian therapy calls our unfinished business, or sorry, Gestalt therapy calls our unfinished business. The more unfinished business we have, the more restless the mind, the more anxious we are, right? Um, the more difficult sitting down and doing foundational meditation practices is going to be because the mind is incredibly unwieldy because we're trying to come to center and it's as if that at lying at that center is an open wound. And it's like touching an open wound. It's like your finger is going to pull away immediately in an autonomic reaction because it hurts. So in this way, having an incredibly busy mind is like the the psyche's disaster signal to us. Hey, there's something here that needs to be worked out. There's something here for you to look into, to, to go deeper with. And so if that's your experience in meditation, well, those thoughts are not your enemy. They're trying to tell you something, you know? And, and certainly in my own experience, the more we turn towards our traumas and our pains and our sufferings and our anxieties and woes and work with them to the point that they become healed, meditation becomes so much more peaceful and so much more restful and so much more interesting and enjoyable and subtle and deep. Um, so those, even in that situation where somebody is too anxious to sit down for five minutes and not move with their eyes closed, that experience is really pointing the way to something else, yeah. right? So, wow. 
Thoughts are our friends. Thoughts are our friends. <laughs> I wish I had. Uh, I wish I had known you back in my uh, academic days when uh, I was very, very turned off by meditation when I was still sort of on the academic path because I, I everything was about thinking, and actually, I mean, you know, looking back the abstracted thinking that I was very attracted to was a form of escape in the same way that, you know, we were talking about drugs were earlier. But I was, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be silent. I didn't want to, you know, release my thoughts. And so I feel like actually, if I had a, if I had found a teacher like you who was, who was talking about meditation in this way, I think I could have got my foot in the door much earlier. Hmm. Yeah. So that's really great. Um, nice. So, so, um, Moving on from that, or, or you know, in that same direction, then I know you had talked about before we started that you don't love a five to seven minute meditation uh, just because you think it's more, um, you know, uh, to to have a longer meditation might be more fruitful. But is there something that you might want to offer as maybe a, a short meditation or a technique that you want to offer the listeners? Yes, of course. Um... For a five to seven minute uh, meditation experience, I actually wouldn't uh, offer foundational breath-based uh, uh, meditation practice just because I think that uh, for for listeners who may be new to meditation, there's a lot... Um, my my approach is really body-based mm -hmm. at this point in my practice and spending a lot of time relaxing the body before coming into any focus with the breath. So that takes a little while. But from going to the brain-based perspective and the second family of meditation, um, I think I can offer something within the five to seven minute range that is around rewiring the brain with uh, desirable mental states, if that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Actually, before we go into that, I would love to hear you talk just a little bit, a bit more about, because I feel like in, in a lot of instances you hear breath-based meditation is offered as the most basic form of meditation. But what I hear you saying is that that this is actually very challenging for beginners. Do you do you have any thoughts on why that is? <laughs> uh, yes, lots of thoughts. Sure. So, I mean, I just got done teaching upstate at a retreat over the weekend, where um, where two of the people at the retreat were going off, and actually one of them was crying as she said this. She was like, "I was ready to give up on meditation." because I found it so frustrating, because I found it so, I just didn't get it. I didn't get how, you know, just sitting and focusing on my breath was supposed to do anything for me. Um, and and there's, there's a misconception that, that, the, that we always have to start there. Mm. And that, that's, that's the, well, I'll just say that there are a lot, there's a lot of other places to start. And I think that in many ways, focusing on the breath um, and returning from distraction, while that is the core of my daily practice, uh, a very fruitful practice, is the practice that has been most studied by neuroscience and, and shown to produce these positive results. I don't always think that that's the most appropriate path, especially for the beginner. Right. Um, one of my teachers, Dr. Miles Neal, says, uh, you know, thank God meditation is not a one size fits all practice. There are many different ways to practice and you can find one that works for you. Um, I think that the body, that, that working with our body is definitely 
uh, underestimated in the mindfulness, mainstream mindfulness tradition, that the Buddha talked about mindfulness of body, and yes, there are body scan practices in the mindfulness-based tradition, but I... I have been uh, listening to a lot of recordings online of uh, this gentleman, Reggie Ray, who, uh, similar to me, is in the tradition of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, I consider myself a Shambhala Buddhist practitioner these days, in addition to everything else. Um, but uh, he, he really recommends spending quite a long time working with the body, um, putting one's awareness in various regions of the body in order to dissolve tension, dissolve uh, uh, held pressures and and held traumas and what have you. And and um, we practice meditation quite a bit, uh, lying down, um, so that we can be close to the earth and plug into the earth, and to feel what it is to ground oneself, feel what it is to truly relax to have an active sense of relaxation and to learn on a somatic level what it is to let go before you sit up and before you start working with the breath and any sort of object of focus. Uh, that to me is in incredibly important and often missed or at least, you know, you might go to a meditation class and they might say, you know, you know scan through your body head to toe, you know, relax your belly, relax your face. And it's, it's kind of quick. And um, in my experience, spending much more time with the body is often very, very appropriate uh, for, for even intermediate practitioners to, 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 in order to have a really relaxed sense of stepping to focus. We don't, we don't tend to think that relaxation and focus go together, but actually relaxation is the basis for having any sort of stability of of consciousness, we we think of of focusing as being like a caffeinated state, like hyper focused, yeah. you know, and that's one way to do it. But in meditation, actually, the more we can relax, the more the mind has an opportunity to settle, and the more vivid and vibrant our experience will will become because there's less going on. Mm -hmm. There's less dulling the mind uh, when when there's less going on, and so and so our experience of the breath or whatever the object of meditation is then becomes very vibrant and very interesting and very soothing, um, and something that you want to gravitate your attention towards rather than something that you're struggling to find. Where is it? I don't feel it very much. I'm losing it every three seconds. This is really frustrating. You know, to have more of a sense of graciousness, um, we have to start with with a, a somatic body-based sense of relaxation. Yeah. That's really great. And I, and I feel like what was really great about what you said is that I feel like you've dispelled two, two myths, essentially. One being, the we haven't really talked about this directly, but the, the traditional meditative seat. Sure. You're talking about lying on your back as being as being another meditative seat. And I feel like there are some people who might who might be happy to hear that they don't have to sit cross-legged. <laughs> you know, it's really challenging for some people. And then also, and also the, the, the body-based, the, the somatic-based uh, practice of meditation, I think you're right, it's, it's really not something that you hear about so much. And so, and will be a welcome, I think, for a lot of people. And for me personally, I've found that in my own meditation, uh, as of late, uh, I, I have much more fruitful meditations when I'm, Focusing on a particular sensation that I have to happen to have in my chest, mm -hmm. very much a, 
almost you know, like a heart chakra-centered experience for me. And even though you could consider that region associated with the breath, there's something about shifting the focus not so much on you know, the breath in my lungs, which I could do, but really just, just the sensations that are arising in that area has, has, been, has been really interesting. Yeah. So then just to get back to, to where you were going before I, I interrupted you, you had wanted to share a technique? Sure, sure. So this will, uh, will do, uh, I, I hesitate to call it a brain rewiring technique, but that's what it is. It's a brain rewiring technique. Um, this is one method of uh, taking desirable mental states and embedding them in what's called implicit memory, which um, I translate as your gut level reaction to the world or your worldview. Um, rewiring our, our brains on this implicit memory level with a positive experience. Um, I hesitate to call it a brain rewiring because you will leave behind neural traces of you know physical structure in the brain with this experience. However, this needs to be practiced repetitiously. We are products of what we repeat. So this is a technique that I find um, quite useful that I myself intend to, though I don't always, uh, practice about 12 times a day. It doesn't take terribly long if you can do this, what I'm about to show you, in 15 seconds. Um, that is wonderful. But I'll take a little bit longer to uh, show this to you now so that we set up and go into it properly. And then I give you lots of ideas about how, how to practice this. So um, just come to a nice comfortable position, whether that means sitting upright in a chair or sitting cross-legged on, on the floor or lying down on your back which is actually a traditional meditation posture taught by the Buddha. And if you're lying on your back, place your feet flat on the floor with your knees bent and your hands over your belly. And if you're sitting in a chair, feet flat on the floor. And wherever you're sitting, place your hands somewhere where you won't fidget with them. I prefer mine uh, facing downwards um, on either side of my lap and just reaching the crown of the head towards the sky. And begin by allowing your legs and your seat and your feet to feel really heavy. Let them soften the whole region of the pelvis and the hips and the thighs, the knees, all the way down to the toes, just soften. Here's a really delightful way to do a body scan. So begin by imagining that the sun is shining on your face. That perhaps you're in a natural environment or standing on a mountaintop and the sun is shining on your face. And you can feel the warmth on your cheeks, on your chin, on your forehead. The colors along the backs of your eyelids are beginning to brighten. And maybe even you turn your chin up to receive just a little bit more of that warmth, that crisp, uh, nourishing light, right? And you give yourself over to the imagination of this actually happening. Your brain will not know the difference between this actually happening and you imagining it. So feeling the warmth and the light of the sun on your face, begin to allow that energy to 
sink down into the skull, into the head. Let it sink down through your throat, your neck, your shoulder tops, your collarbones, your shoulder blades, on down through the arms and hands, on down through the chest, the belly, along the back, along the side body, all the way down through the pelvis and the hips and the legs, down through your heels and your toes and the soles of your feet, down into the earth. And just sensing any shift in awareness that has taken place as a result of this simple exercise. Please take now this good feeling that you're having, even if it's just very subtle. And I'll ask you to begin to amplify it on purpose in your mind. So if it's a color, it gets brighter. If it's a sound, it gets louder. If it's a taste, it becomes sweeter. On purpose, magnify it. And then on purpose, magnify it again, intensify it. Notice how fresh it is. This feeling was not there before. It's here now. How nice to have this subtle, good feeling of the sun in your body. Intensify it one more time. Double it. And as it grows larger and sweeter and louder and brighter and more vivid, I invite you to open up your body Open up your face, your chest, your belly, your feet, and let it in. Let it sink deeply into you. Let it wash over you so that you marinate in the good feeling. And just enjoy it for a few seconds. And then put that feeling in the background of your mind. And let it just linger there. If it fades away, that's okay. And then place in the foreground of mind somebody that you love. Somebody that you really care for. Please see them as clearly as you can. If you are only capable of feeling their presence, that's okay. But make it as high definition as possible. See their face, their eyes, their hair, their cheekbones. Maybe whisper their name silently in your mind a couple of times. And really bring them into the room, sitting with you. Smelling their smell or hearing their voice is good, if that's available. And bringing them into the room to sit here with you just look at them and dig on them and see if you can begin to tap into that natural love you have for this person. Where would I be without you? How many good times have we shared? And as you begin to feel the sense of love uncovered in you, as you make space for it and allow it, as you dwell on this person, love flowing out towards this person. 
Notice how sweet that feeling of love is. Notice how good it feels and intensify it. Let it be big. Let it be bright. And I invite you to intensify it again. Double it. Let it grow and grow. And then let all of that goodness intensify a third time. Maybe intensify to a ridiculous extent. Fake it till you make it. And then invite it in. Like the sun's rays shining upon your skin when you're laying out at the beach. Like a flood of waters washing over you. Feel this good feeling spreading everywhere through your body. It's sinking into your skin. It's sinking into your muscles, into your bones, into your DNA. And just enjoy it. Give yourself over to it and enjoy it for 10 more seconds on your own. then seal in this good work by taking one nice deep breath and as you exhale let out a sigh and then transition very gently back maybe wiggling your fingers and toes slowly peeling open the eyes Thank you. Wow, thank you, Ralph. Gosh, I've got to get to your mindfulness session. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, the, the, I, I really enjoyed the, the, sun, the sun visualization and also the, the invitation to intensify those good qualities. I feel like I haven't really experienced that cue before in, in a meditation, and it's powerful. Nice. Wow, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Yeah, so actually, this is a great segue just to tell the listeners where they can where they can find you. you sure. Know, tell them about tell us about this mindfulness sessions, maybe any other projects you're um, you're involved in that you want to share. Absolutely. So um, I just to wrap up that last one, I'll mention that um, that meditation comes from Rick Hansen. Um, none of that did I think of on my own, um, I, although I definitely play with the language. But um, Dr. Rick Hansen is a neuroscien- uh, neuropsychologist in Northern California who um, I'll talk about one of his books in a little bit. But in terms of my uh, projects, the mindfulness sessions uh, is coming back from a two-month break um, and will begin this Saturday, uh, October 3rd, at Loom Yoga in Bushwick. Um, Every Saturday at 6 p.m., we will be there um, through the year. So, um, And my classes are always by donation, with a suggested donation. But if you can't, if you have no money, please just come. Don't worry about it. Um, This stuff is meant to be freely offered. Uh, I'm hosting workshops at Maha Rose up here in Greenpoint on a regular basis. Uh, My next one is October 11th on Healing Anger. Um, I where Maha, Rose is. Maha Rose is on Green Street between Manhattan and Franklin, um, right here in Greenpoint. Yeah, in Brooklyn. Um, wonderful healing center with lots of stuff going on. 
um, I'll be doing something on healing trauma there um, early in the new year in 2016. So um, look out for that. All of this can be found on my website, which is ralphdelarosa.com. Um, the Mindfulness Sessions is on Facebook. It's on Instagram. Um, also, in January, I'm very excited to launch, uh, for the first time ever, something called Life School. And Life School is going to be a six-month curriculum of, of systematic trainings through the three families of meditation that I mentioned before. So we'll do two months of foundational uh, meditation. We're going to spend a lot of time laying on the ground, really getting in touch with our bodies, and then learning to come into an object of focus very, very skillfully so that we can actually do it. Um, so we'll spend two months on that. We'll spend two months on this positive brain rewiring material that comes from Rick Hansen, also loving kindness meditation, which is a traditional form of meditation practice in the Buddhist canon. Uh, something that's being taught to veterans right now to help them heal from trauma, something that's being taught to uh, drug addicts, to, to people with depression. Uh, it's been adapted all over the place for uh, clinical interventions. So we'll be exploring that in the second family of meditation. And then the third uh, segment, we'll spend two months on healing traumas and, uh, and cultivating compassion. And the whole thing is going to be open to the public. And you can either drop into individual classes or you can sign up for a four $40 membership, and the $40 membership per month gets you not only all of the classes, all of the workshops, but recordings of all of the classes, printed materials, recommended readings. There will also be a once a month a process group where just we sit around and we, we circle up and just talk about how this is going, um, what it's like to switch to you know, having a dedicated practice and doing these things systematically, what's coming up in the meditation practice. So I really want to offer uh, a, a way for people to access a really deep training that's super user-friendly, that's not expensive, that's quite affordable, um, where the only real expectation is is that you're going to engage in it earnestly. Yeah. Um, that's it. No, no other beliefs or anything like that to sign up for. Just engage and work it out for yourself, how, what it looks like and what you really think about it. But the idea is to see the fruits of meditation um, for yourself. Mm-hmm. For yourself, um, and then I'll just mention that the last two months of that on healing trauma, because that work is um, can be a little bit intensive, and I w- really want to offer a very safe and loving container for that work that won't be open to the public. Um, that will be a members-only experience. So if you want to uh, sign up just for that, that's totally fine. But um, you you got to be in for the whole ride, start to finish. Um, so that way we're working with a secure and, and grounded group um, that's committed to doing it together. So, so yeah. where is that going to be held? That will uh, that's will be at Loom. That will actually take the place, yes, of of the mindfulness sessions starting in January. Um, uh, because this is this is kind of our beta test year to really try out um, offering this systematic training. But I'm thoroughly, thoroughly excited about it. Excited so. about it. It's, it's such an incredible offering. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You've Thank got you. A lot of really exciting things going on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you. So yeah. So we we've covered all the questions I have for you. My, my last question, which is something that that I ask all of the people that I interview. Um, and I'll just give a little back backstory to this. So one of the offerings that I'm that I'm uh, giving on the Five Tapas website is an annotated bibliography of of 
yoga philosophy um, and wisdom books that, you know, a, a complete sort of list, including summaries of each book, that I wish I had when, you know, I was looking for more material. So um, if you want to offer two or three books that you think have been really transformative that could be included in that um, resource, sure. that would be really great. Sure. I would definitely recommend A Path with Heart by Jack Cornfield. Uh, very, very thorough. Yes, wonderful. A uh, huge, huge inspiration uh, in my practice and in my life. Uh, a Path with Heart uh, covers a lot of ground, uh, really tells a very thorough story of, of the path of meditation and offers lots of guided practices along the way for cultivating a daily practice. Um, a, a basic medita- uh, foundational uh, meditation manual that I refer back to again and again is Turning the Mind into an Ally by a gentleman named Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche. If you just Google Turning the Mind into an Ally, you, it will come find it. right up. Um, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> Um, Anything by Reggie Ray. Reggie Ray. Who, org. you can find lots of guided meditation practices and lots of free resources on his website. Uh, Wonderful, deep, and and different view of meditation there, um, for sure. And then I'll also mention something that is not within the canon of of Buddhism or yoga, but um, has definitely changed my life in the past year, which is the work of this man, Bill Ferguson. Um, and he has an e-course called Mastery of Life. Mm-hmm. I have done four chapters out of ten, and it has radically changed so much. Um, it really informs my understanding of how to heal from trauma in a self-directed way. Uh, really, really wonderful training. He's, again, not a Buddhist, not a yogi. He's actually a divorce lawyer <laughs> who, who uh, talks like Mr. Rogers, looks a little bit like a basset hound, um, and is just this very sweet man who paid attention to conflict and relationships and people who love each other breaking up over and over again. And he had this wonderful wealth of insights about the way the stuff that hurts us really runs our lives and shapes our lives and how to heal from it in a very direct and no-nonsense sort of way. It's tough work, but it, it works. Uh, so Bill Ferguson, Bill Ferguson masteryoflife.com. Huge inspiration. Wow. wow, this has been such an incredible conversation. Ralph, thank you so much for thank you as well. time to talk to me and to share so much about your life and what you're doing. It really, I think uh, there's so much here that's been really illuminating and insightful that people are going to really get a lot from, so thank you. It's truly been a pleasure, yeah. like I said. All the benefit, <laughs> I feel like I'm receiving it, but may the benefits of this conversation, may it spread out like the most profound ripple effect ever and nourish sentient beings everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ralph. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ralph De La Rosa. You can find out more about Ralph at ralphdelarosa.com. You can also follow the Mindfulness Sessions on Facebook and Instagram.